Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. This is week 11, days 71 through 77. With us, as always, Matthew. Hello. He's always with us, except for the times when he isn't with us. That's true. And that's Aaron correcting everybody. Ah, <laughs> yikes. Aaron, how you doing? Well, I feel rebuked. You got rebuked for rebuking. Yeah. Well, is it is that okay even? No, I think it's fine. It's good. Um, and then when I'm on sabbatical, you guys will be able to experience recording without me introducing any disagreements or or rebukes along the way. I don't remember receiving any time off requests for sabbatical as the producer of this podcast. I, I did not approve. I know, so. I know. Well, I had a conversation with Joshua, and I think he might be willing to step in on a few of these. And uh, I'll definitely be out of town for several of the weeks, so I wouldn't really be able to record outside of calling in, which is actually a feature we have uh, with our soundboard. But I think Josh and Steve encouraged me to take a step back, even perhaps from podcasting. Well, if you find your own replacement, I guess that that's acceptable. Yeah, that's our time off policy. Can you lead us through numbers? Our reading in numbers for this week begins in number six with the Nazarite vow. What do you guys think of when you hear that term? Uh, It made me think of a Nazarene church I went to for about a year. And I wondered if that's where they got some of their stuff from was from this vow. You know, that could be. I know nothing about the Nazarenes, but I know that there's, at least in the Bible, a distinction between a Nazarene and a Nazarite. Mm. A Nazarene is someone, I believe, who is from Nazareth. So when Jesus is called the Nazarene, um, at least in the song that sometimes we sing, uh, it's not saying that he took the Nazarite vow. It's connecting him to Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth, Nazarene, that's different than a Nazarite. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I wasn't sure if they were connected or not, but one thing I found interesting, part of the vow, as we'll get into, um, they abstain from strong drink, wine, and all that. And uh, that's one thing that they said at the church I went to. They said, if you want to become a member, you have to like promise to you know, teetotal. You know, I grew up in the fundamental Baptist world, independent fundamental Baptist, and in most of the church covenants of the churches that I was a part of, there was a line that was we covenant to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating beverages. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, you know, I don't think that at all was connected to the Nazarite vow. I think instead it was probably... Um, connected to prohibition in America. So if you look at church covenants pre-prohibition, I don't think you'll be able to find one, at least in the Baptist world, where there was a prohibition against alcohol consumption in in a church covenant. But then when prohibition came about and it was made illegal, that was something that was added in. And then when prohibition ended, they never really revised some of those church covenants. And in fact, Um, The Church Covenant of Resurrection Church, formerly known as Crystal Lake Road Baptist Church, was revised in 2019 to remove that line. Um, So that's something that's still pretty popular these days. 
and uh, the the only explanation I can come up with is prohibition. So it might be a, something comparable. It might be if in Minnesota, marijuana was legalized in some churches. Well, it would be the opposite. If if marijuana were legal now and then it was made illegal, some churches might add in, you can't smoke marijuana. I don't know if that's a good comparison or not. Samson, who was a Nazarite from birth, I think there's only a couple examples of that in the Bible, but Samson is, of course, the, the obvious one that, that jumps to mind. Yeah, he is dedicated that way. And I'd have to recall uh, the details of that story. Maybe we can cut out any dead space that we need to, but in Judges, yeah. the Samson story is told. Do you remember where in Judges? I remember that it's it's definitely in that book, and as we because I kind of want to make a time. I want to raise a question about that. Another woman who was unable to conceive, angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, "Although you are unable to conceive and have no children, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or eat anything unclean." And I think even according to modern medicine, if you're pregnant, you should not be drinking wine or beer. Um, for indeed, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. That's, that's interesting because in number six, the Nazarite vow is completely voluntary. Uh, there's no requirement for anyone to take it. It's it's voluntary, and it there's not a set amount of time. But this miraculous conception, we might say, was um, maybe given the prerequisite of this, this son needs to be an Azrite from birth, and really it seems for life. So maybe we'll come across some more details when we get to judges on that one. Well, let, let's talk about the Nazarite vow a little bit in number six. There are really three main restrictions the first, as we've already mentioned, is no drinking of wine, beer, strong drink. However that's translated in the Christian Standard Bible, it's from wine and beer. But really, we could probably say anything alcoholic. And then it's so rigid that he or she, whoever partakes of this vow, can't have grapes even. you know. So, so nothing related to the grape where, where this alcoholic beverage comes from would be permitted. Um, and then the second one is that you can't cut the hair. Uh, this is kind of interesting. One of my Old Testament professors says that these are the original hippies. They're hippies for God. So that, that's his a direct citation. Um, so, so that's funny, you know, if we want to talk about that a little bit. But you're not supposed to cut hair. And then you're supposed to avoid contact with the deceased at all costs. Um, so these are the requirements. Interestingly, as we've already mentioned, men and women can take this vow. So it, it seems like uh, when whenever I've heard this talked about, I've only ever imagined that men would take this vow. But really, women could take it as well. And it seems like that's what the angel of the Lord is instructing Samson's mother to do, at least during the time of her pregnancy. Uh, but there, there isn't a time period that is connected to this. And there are sacrifices and actions to take when you're coming to end the period of your Nazarite dedication. And, and then, given the strong 
restriction of wine that starts this section, it's really fitting that after the Nazarite has gone through all of the processes that lead to the end of the vow, it says simply, after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So it's just really uh, clear. Things are over. You're, You're back to normal. Yeah, they talked a lot about not touching dead bodies, probably a cultural thing. You, you'd be more likely to come into contact with it. Oh, yeah, and you would be the one dealing with it. Yeah. You're, you're not sending off your aged relatives to a nursing home where they'll be put on hospice. Um, and in this time period, you're in the wilderness where people are regularly disobeying God and experiencing death as a result from it. And then, as we'll see later on, a whole generation will die in the desert. So there, people just are in contact with death a lot more frequently. Um, and in, in our society, that just rarely ever happens. I think I could count on one hand the number of dead people that I have been in contact with. I don't know about you guys, but... Like just going to funerals or in out, Actually, like, uh, well, I worked in group homes for a while. Mm. And so, for example, you know, one of the individuals in one of the homes was... Their body was just rejecting food, so we were doing in-home hospice, and I had to give uh, these morphine shots every certain number of hours, and, and then, you know, eventually she died, and uh, we were the ones taking care of her in the moment, so you're, like, trying to um, prepare uh, a little bit of the body just for the family who would come in that, that day prior to the body being taken away to the to the uh, now I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the place where we send dead Mort- bodies. Mortician? To the mortician. There, there it is. So, you know, like, but that was pretty rare. You know, how often are we in circumstances where that happens? Um, Did you get extra pay for having to, like, be around the trauma of somebody dying? No, they uh, like to just pay the salary that was agreed upon on the day of hire mm. and not pay anything extra. Mm. But because but- I had to be... I spent a lot of time there that week, so they I did just take a day off. I'm like, no one's checking in on me. Like, I'm tired. I've been here, like, late in the night and early in the morning. You know, I I just am not going in today. Well, after the Nazarite vow, we have this blessing at the end of chapter 6. Matthew, could you read Numbers 6, 22 through 27? Yes, Numbers six twenty-two through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. You should say to them, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites and I will bless them. Does that sound familiar to you, Matthew? Yeah, I did. I've heard uh, I've heard people quote that. Is it in a song? Isn't it in a song? It's in a song. Yeah, yeah I think I'm it's sure it been is. picked up in Christian music. Yeah. Um, I was that, thinking kind of how we end the service yeah, with different yeah, benedictions. Yeah, sometimes people say that. Yep. Yeah, we end every service with a benediction. And very often, I unironically give the ironic blessing. Blessing. <laughs> um, Unironic, ironic. Yeah, yeah, this is one of my favorite ones to give, and I don't have the exact 
um, Christian Standard Bible edition of it memorized, but very often I'll just say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Yeah. And we end in that way. It's a top three benediction, I would say. Yeah, I think it's good. And I think significantly, this is the way that God gives the high priest and his sons uh, to pronounce God's name over the Israelites. In that pronunciation of God's name, that that blessing actually will result in God blessing them. Um, so I think it's a way of God putting his name on people. Uh, he's marking them as his people, and people marked by God receive the, the blessing, right? So this is a really significant thing, and this language has contributed to the language of Christians today. Chapter 7 was Chapter rough. 7 is a long chapter, what, 90 <laughs> verses? Yeah, chapter 7 is long, but it's worth it by the time you get to the end of it because you see Moses entering the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, and he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim. He spoke to him that way. And and you have this sense that God is dwelling with his people and speaking through the mediator Moses. But then as we get into chapter 8, uh, there's this really interesting line as we start to see the instructions that are given to the Levites. In verse 7, these Levites are supposed to uh, cleanse themselves, go through this purification rite, and so they're sprinkled with purification water, and then they have to shave their entire bodies and wash their clothes and so purify themselves. So it's like the exact opposite of what the Nazarite is doing, who is not permitted to cut his or her hair. Well, these male priests are going to have their whole body shaved. Um, so I don't know what kind of instruments they use, but I just think that's that's a little bit of a precarious situation. Uh, but they're, they're purifying themselves. They're being marked off as... Um, separate for the Lord. Do you think that included eyebrows? You know, I I have not speculated, uh, but I've just assumed entire body just includes everything. Oh. It's the plain reading of the text. It is the plain reading of the text. And I, I haven't it. examined ancient Near Eastern priestly shaving rituals or anything to see exactly what this might entail, but um, there you have it. As we continue on, as the Lord is giving instructions, I just want to point out that uh, very often God gives the rationale that they should do these things because of the redemption that he provided when they left the land of Egypt or because of the acts of judgment that he poured out on the Egyptians that the Israelites were saved from. So once again, we might read some of these texts and say, ah, this is so legalistic, but really it's grounded in God's gracious redemption of Egypt. And as this goes on, we're just delighted to hear, like in 8.20, that the Israelites did everything that the Lord commanded Moses. So you just see people obeying God left and right as we go through these texts. That's picked up again in 8.22. And then in 9.5, the Israelites did everything as the Lord commanded. And then when there's a question of how they're supposed to go about a particular case study, a new, a novel situation. They ask Moses about it, and Moses says, wait till I hear what the Lord commands, and then they do exactly what the Lord commands. So over and over again, all the way through the end of chapter 9 and even into chapter 10, people are doing exactly what God commands. Then when we get to chapter 11, things change 
radically, and people begin to complain before the Lord, and God brings about judgment on them that just perfectly fits their situation. I've got a quick question as far as how a word is translated, not to put you on the spot, but um, in the ESV, they keep using the term over and over again, wave offering. And I think in the CSB, it's translated presentation offering. Yeah. What is that? What is that word? What's a verse that's a good example of this? Um, you could look up 8.11. Yeah. I mean, my uh, initial guess is just going to be that it's two ways of talking about the same thing. You're waving it for the purpose of presenting it. So one translation is going to emphasize the goal and then the other one, the ESV, is emphasizing the means. Maybe that would be a helpful way of looking at it. But I'm I'm not very confident that I would know why we would pick one over the other. Okay. So that's what they were doing, I guess. They were presenting something, showing something, waving something. Because obviously a burnt offering, you kind of get what they're doing there. They're burning yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, the word is tenufa, just an uplifted offering. Um, so it... I'm looking here at my Hebrew lexicon, and it just describes it as referring to the raising or consecration of the objects offered or the portions of the offerings. So literally, it's raised or... So it's just, it's more symbolic. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Than physically, you know, burning something or cutting something or whatever. Well, they may, you know, depending on the, the ritual, it may include... Cutting something and then waving it in the air or lifting it up or something like that. That makes sense. Okay. I was curious about that. Yeah. I am I would be interested if you come across anything more helpful than my, my quick lexicon look at it. In Numbers 11, people begin to complain openly before the Lord, and God judges them right away. He sends fire that blazes among them, and so they name that place Tabera which means blaze. So this is the section in Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty, where he titles it to hell and back, because this is exactly what they experience, we might say. And then things get worse, even after this judgment in verse four, the riffraff. I like the way that the CSB translates it. It's an obscure word, but the riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. Um, They're remembering the time in Egypt And uh, God is going to give them meat uh, so much that it comes out of their nose. And it's like, I think the picture here is that they end up dying of like eating bad meat or something, you know. So in verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. Um, And they buried the people who had craved the meat. So it seems like it was somewhat targeted, maybe these individuals who are consuming this. Um, but anyway, in, in this account, there's we also have this, well, anything you guys want to say about this uh, meat and punishment? I think it makes sense that these people are craving it so much they might have eaten it before it was even fully cooked and got sick or something. Yeah, who knows what the case might be, but I think it's a, at least a good object lesson for us of the fact that often we crave something Maybe it's not even bad, but it's just not what God has for us. And then we, when we chase after it, um, going against 
uh, God's demands on our lives in those moments, often that thing that we just crave so much actually consumes us as we're consuming it. I think that's a good picture of idolatry. Yeah, I like that. Well, during this time, um, Moses is sort of complaining to the Lord as well, saying, I can't handle these people. And if you remember back in Exodus, Moses' father-in-law had him appoint several elders who had helped him, but they definitely weren't equal to him. And uh, it seems like in this text, those 70 elders, these 70 men, are elevated in status, and they receive some of the spirit of God that was on Moses. In 1125, these 70 men begin to prophesy after they receive the spirit of God, but then they never did it again. But then verse 26 tells us that two men had remained in the camp, and it's not altogether clear to me whether these are part of the 70 men or not, but they were prophesying. I think that they are included in the 70 men because the spirit, it says the spirit rested among them. They were among those listed. They prophesied in the camp. Uh, But then someone reports this to Moses, speaking negatively about them as if their prophesying was a bad thing, probably because these individuals kept prophesying while the other 70 no longer did. Um, In Joshua, Moses' assistant appealed to Moses to stop them. And it seems that Joshua's jealous that these guys were doing something that normally was restricted to Moses. And Moses says, if only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. I don't. I think this might be a good analog or comparison to what happens in the book of Acts, where God's spirit rests on individuals and um, at the day of Pentecost, and they speak in tongues and prophesy their healings, all these things in the book of Acts. And then there's some debate about these things later on in like 1 Corinthians. And I, I just wonder if this is like maybe a little bit of a template where, the, where God's Spirit is poured out in a new way. You see more indications of prophesying and, and works of the Spirit. And then generally speaking, as time progresses, you don't see it. But on occasion, sometimes you do. And when that is truly a word from the Lord, you shouldn't speak against it. I think that's what Paul is trying to say in 1 Corinthians when he says, don't forbid them to prophesy. You know, don't forbid them to speak in tongues. So maybe that's something that would contribute to a debate about whether or not uh, things like prophecy and speaking in tongue continues into the modern day. That's a good thought. I hadn't thought of that. Does, uh, Does Resurrection Church have an official stance on those things, prophesying in tongues. Yeah, we we do have a bit of a stance on it, and there are some clear things that we would deny. So there are some church traditions that would say the evidence that you are a true Christian and that you've received the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues, and we would deny that altogether. We do not think that speaking in tongues is evidence of your salvation and that we can't be we can't confirm that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit until you're speaking in tongues. So there are some views that we would completely uh, block out and say that that is incorrect and unbiblical. Uh, there is probably some room for disagreement on these things. Obviously, we don't have like a prophecy mic where we have people come up and give a prophecy and we don't encourage speaking in tongues in the congregation or something like that. Uh, We would define speaking in tongues as speaking in a human language. So like 
speaking a language you don't know, like, uh, I don't know. German. German, for example. When we read the church fathers, when they illustrate this, they use someone speaking in Persian who doesn't know Persian. So we would categorize it as, yeah, perhaps that could happen, especially maybe in missionary contexts where the gospel has not been made known and someone happens to be there who's a Christian and God gives them the ability to speak in a language they don't know. So that's kind of how we would define it which then definitely limits what we would identify as speaking in tongues or not. That makes sense. So um, if people were quote-unquote praying, but they're just saying gibberish, essentially, I mean, is that they're pretty much just wasting their time and just literally saying nothing? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to belittle someone who's doing that, but... And I, and I also wouldn't say they're doing anything sinful. I would just say it's probably not profitable, and they're probably experiencing something. I don't know what they're experiencing. There have been a lot of stabs at what this might be, but I think certainly there's some psychological um, thing going on there, which is fine. Uh, I think it's relatively harmless, but I definitely wouldn't say that it's a beneficial spiritual practice. Uh, but I know a lot of people who would disagree with that. So I would recommend a book by a guy named Tom Schreiner called Spiritual Gifts. And the view he advocates for there is basically what, what I would hold. What do you think about these, AJ? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't spent too much time with it. I've read Schreiner's book, and I think I largely agree with that. Yeah, I think what we'd want to be clear about is that we're we're not saying none of these things could happen. I am just trying to say, I don't think that's the normal experience of faithful Christians, at least where we are. I th- you know, I've heard of Christians in um, like Muslim countries, for instance, people who came to faith as they received a vision of Jesus and they had never heard the gospel in any other way. Well, I'm definitely not doubting those things and I wouldn't want to ever speak negatively or cast out on them. I just think the more that the gospel is spread, and the more the church is established, those gifts have less of a purpose. Um, and, and I think we can track that. You know, you see that as Paul's church planting. He says, I, I speak in tongues more than any of you. Well, that makes total sense because he's going on these missionary journeys all over the place, right? Uh, so I think it's the, the purpose is to establish the church. And where the church is established, uh, there's less of a, a purpose for them. Um, and we find the evidence of the Spirit in things that I think are actually a lot harder to do, which is like love and joy and peace and long-suffering. I think those gifts of the Spirit are much more difficult uh, to see on a regular basis. And I think that's what we should be pursuing really strongly. Um, along with this, I think I'd also want to say that it there may be other factors that would be reasons that God is not using people in these ways so regularly, especially in Western modernized places. I think that most of the time, if you showed up to any unbeliever and you started performing, I don't know, some miracle or something, 
where in the ancient world, given their worldview, that would drive people to God. I think it would probably freak people out and drive them away from God, you know? So I think that's why in more pagan contexts where the supernatural realm is something where people are diving into all the time, you know, demonic practices or or witchcraft or things like that, I think it's far less surprising that you see clearly supernatural events that the Spirit brings about in those situations because it's just more perceptible in that worldview, where in our worldview, I don't think it would drive people to churches. I think it would drive them out of it. Uh, so who knows? I mean, these these are complicated things, and I don't want to be super dogmatic. So I'm sure there are people in our church who would be much more inclined to that view that these things should be normal, uh, the continuationist view. Um, and apparently they're happy to be here, even though we don't you know, encourage speaking in tongues during a service or something. Towards the end of our reading for this week, um, we encounter individuals who go into the land of Canaan to spy it out. And this is uh, where we get that wonderful song about 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and two were good. And the two are Caleb and Joshua. uh, But when we read this story, we are just... Um, amazed at the way that God sends people into the land. They scout it out. This is a lot like um, Abraham going into the land and walking through it. So if you remember that from Genesis, when God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, go in and walk everywhere around there. This will be my gift to you. Well, now he's saying the same thing to these individuals. Go in, scope out the land, walk through it. Uh, This is going to be my gift to you. And There are huge ripe grapes there. Uh, There are the Nephilim there. So you'll remember this from our discussion on Genesis 6-4 about the Nephilim who lived prior to the flood and after. Whoever these individuals are, I think they're just uh, large human beings. Um, So maybe it's like the Mies of the world being like the Israelites, you know, the five foot six people five foot six and a half, if I'm wearing my thicker boots, going into a land filled with Kobe Bryant's or something like that, you know, or, or maybe uh, Andre the Giants or the Shacks. I don't know anything about what basketball players are like, but I can imagine, um, you know, we have example of human beings who are just massive human beings like Andre the Giant. And there are tiny people like me and even shorter people And it's interesting how even over the course of history, average heights change. So I think during the Civil War, the average height was like five foot six. So I would have been an average guy, where in our world, I'm just, at least in the United States, I'm a pretty short guy, especially compared to Matthew. But then I think uh, Jesus, or the average Palestinian man in Jesus's day, I believe was like four foot nine. So you can imagine how... People could walk into land and there'd be a different, um, you know, ethnic grouping where they're just massively larger. And that would be really fear instilling if you're thinking, I've got to go in and fight this person. So if I'm four foot nine going in and looking at a seven foot ten person, I don't know, how tall is Shaq? Seven one. Seven one. I mean, that's that's like a big difference. Yeah. So who knows what, what they were seeing, but they were fearful. They reply that it would have been better for them to go back to Egypt. And they even say, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt in chapter 14. How remarkable. 
And if you remember, this is just two years after they left Egypt. So it's within living memory that they were forced to make bricks to build buildings for the Egyptians. And they're saying it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Things get worse, though, because the the whole community threatened to stone Caleb and Joshua, who are saying, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid. He's going to go with us. Well, they, they respond by threatening to stone Caleb and Joshua. The Lord is clearly unhappy. Uh, he even offers Moses a way out here um, where, he, where God would kill all the people with a single blow and then make a great nation out of Moses, that kind of thing. Well, well, that wouldn't be good. Uh, so he intercedes for them. He calls upon the revelation of God's character that was given to him in Exodus 34. He quotes back to God who he revealed himself to be. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. And so he asks that the Lord would pardon the iniquity of the people in keeping with the greatness of his faithful love, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. So the Lord responds that he will pardon them, but those who acted unfaithfully, none of them are going to make it into the promised land. Their corpses will fall in the wilderness. So they'll wander for 40 days or for 40 years, one for each of the days uh, that they scoped out the land. So we end our section with a movement from Israel obeying everything that the Lord commands to Israel rebelling against everything that the Lord commands and rejecting the gracious gift that he offers them, his presence in the land that he will give them. As we transition to the New Testament reading, we find Jesus cursing the fig tree, and sandwiched in between the lesson of the fig tree is Jesus cleansing the temple. And Josh pointed out that we see a lot of things like this occurring in the book of Mark. Aaron, what do you think the significance is of this episode of Jesus cleansing the temple after cursing a fig tree for not having fruit on it, which seems kind of a, a unique instance on its own? What do you think the significance is of this episode here sandwiched in between these two accounts of the fig tree? I should be maybe be a little bit careful because Josh and I disagree with the way that these things work in this text. And I would point you to a previous podcast episode where Josh and I discuss this this whole setup, uh, which sort of... Was it for this story? It, it includes this story because I see I uh, Mark 11 connecting all the way uh, to Mark 13. Uh, I'll just lay out a few things. So I think when Mark is putting his account of the gospel together. He's intentionally putting different episodes from Jesus's life side by side in order to highlight a particular thing. And in this section, he begins by having Jesus, who was just welcomed in to Jerusalem as God's appointed king. So people have Right out to him, Hosanna, right? Uh, so he goes into Jerusalem, this is 11.11, and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany in the 12. So this is almost like when God's glory fills the temple. So Jesus looks around, he sees everything, and it's already late, so then he leaves. So it's like an explanatory line of, well, why didn't Jesus do anything about the temple when he went in there? Well, it was late. Uh, so they went and they left. 
And then the next day when they're coming back to the temple, he's hungry and he sees a fig tree with leaves and he went to find out if there was anything on it and it had nothing but leaves, so no fruit. And this is why, for it was not the season for figs. So it's a tree that you wouldn't expect to be bearing fruit. Uh, It's not in its season, right? And I think this tree is going to come to represent the temple, which itself is representative of Judaism. So he curses it and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So then he goes into the temple again. So the glory of God, the God made visible, fills the temple and he clears the temple of all of these individuals. And uh, when they're leaving, you know, they, they went out of the city. And early in the morning, as they're passing by, they see the fig tree, uh, and it's withered from the roots up. And Peter remembers that Jesus cursed it. Uh, and the whole point, I think, is that this tree is representative of what's going to hap- happen to the temple. Uh and, and then, as this continues on, we get some parables. Jesus interacts with the Sadducees regarding the resurrection. Uh, but then, as you get into chapter 13, or, or right before that, at the end of chapter 12, the disciples and Jesus observe a widow giving all that she has into the treasury, which funds the temple. And it's really a waste of her money because it's not doing anything. And it's going to be destroyed. And as they're going out of the temple, uh, the disciples are commenting on how impressive the temple is. And Jesus tells them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Uh, so this temple, he predicts, is going to be destroyed, which is exactly what happens in 70 AD. Now, there's also another element to this, to where Jesus died and rose again. He said he'd rebuild this temple in three days. Well, he was talking about his body. He is the true temple. Uh, So we don't worship in the temple. You don't need this Jerusalem temple anymore. It is um, outdated, we might say. And then there's this enigmatic statement in 1328 where Jesus says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. And it's hard to know if this is referencing that fig tree or just fig trees in general and how fruit and trees work. But in any case, it's a really intriguing section. I think there are passages in the Old Testament too where Israel is referred to as a fig tree. I believe so. Yeah. So that could just be a common. Yeah, I I, I don't know enough to say, but yeah, it I probably think, is. I think in Jeremiah. I kind of side with Judas here when he's like, man, what do you, I know, I know, I know. Hot take. <laughs> don't AJ signing with Judas. <laughs> we could have sold this alabaster flask for a lot of money, given it to the poor. It's not what he was really thinking. but Yeah, we at least don't think he actually was concerned for the poor. I don't want to make it sound like you're making a bad decision here, but... I'm just saying that sometimes you can understand where they're coming from. So in this scene where this woman with an alabaster flask full of this expensive ointment. Yeah, I think it's funny the way that the CSB translates this. An alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. Nard dog. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, my initial reaction was like, oh yeah, we probably could have sold that and maybe used that money in a different way. Yeah, though again, I think you're maybe giving too much credit and uh, putting too much trust in Judas's speech. Um, and again, you know, it's not just Judas expressing this. It says some were expressing in 
indignation one to another. So who knows exactly what uh, Judas was thinking, but he's probably chiming in with them. But significantly, his motives are revealed when he realizes Jesus doesn't care about money the way that I do. Uh, Jesus is not going to be like the Gentiles where he lords his authority over them. Jesus is not going to take advantage of people just to get their money, and that's what I want. So when he started to realize that Jesus was not going to do that for him, he immediately goes to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and they promise money to him. So you see a battle for, for money here, and we see what Judas really wants. So I wouldn't feel bad for him in this instance. I would say this guy has misunderstood just like every other person, just like the rich young man who uh, was unwilling to sell what he had to follow the Lord. Well, Judas is an anti-Jesus, we might say. One of my favorite passages, Mark 14, uh, verses 51 and 52 who was that guy? Now, there are a lot of um, suggestions that this is Mark, the author of the text. And obviously, there have been many, many first uh, biblical streaker jokes that have been made from this. Um, I don't know totally what to make of it. Why is that detail included? Uh, people speculate about these things. If it is Mark, you can understand why he would just say a certain young man uh, instead of identifying himself. But I I just think it's uh, a, a unique detail. Yeah. And I don't know what to make of it. I yeah. mean, part of me wants to say it's illustrative of uh, people who are running away from everything they need and they're exposed for who they are is they, they have uh, left their Lord in his time of need. Maybe there's something like that. Uh, maybe it's here's an added detail to kind of bolster the historicity of the event to show, look, this whole Jesus narrative, this is not us just making ourselves look good. In fact, we've pretty much missed the boat the whole way through. And Jesus was set up for betrayal the whole time. And then when he was betrayed, everyone left him. Like, this is not a us hero story. We we failed, and now we're just witnesses to the Jesus who didn't fail. I, I don't know how to take it. Uh, maybe you guys have some ideas. Could uh, could another application, because what, what that guy was doing with just a linen cloth, you know, maybe he was just unprepared. He was unprepared for the moment. That's not a lot of clothes, you know? Yeah, and again, I haven't done any study into Palestinian clothing styles back in that day, but if this guy had been following them into the garden late at night, you know, maybe maybe this guy was in his PJs and he woke up as this crowd was arresting Jesus and he he comes out of his house and that's all he's got on is his little nightgown. Uh yeah, I don't know what we would make of it or what the circumstances were. I'm sure Chosen, that TV show, has something, you know, well, I don't know. That's a family program. Maybe they wouldn't have a streaker on that, but it would be interesting to see what they come up with is kind of the situation in which this this guy came about to run away. Well, we are through the month of February. Some of the worst times of the year in Minnesota were through almost completely the book of Mark. 
We've made good progress in numbers, so I'm anticipating that as we continue to read the Bible together, we will be encouraged all the more as we get into other uh, parts of the Bible and as we enter into a season where it doesn't get dark as early or it, and, and we're able to just enjoy our time together as we anticipate the resurrection as we read the Bible. So if you're reading along with us, I would just encourage you to keep reading. Um, you guys who are reading... AJ and Matthew, thanks for doing this with me. And uh, together, I think we're we're growing in our knowledge of of the Word and the Lord. And uh, sometimes it might seem like this doesn't happen quickly, you know. And it and maybe there aren't huge results in our lives right away. But I would just give the parable of my ficus ginseng bonsai tree at home, which is slowly growing leaves as it's hitting its own sort of spring. I bought it. A month ago during like polar vortexy type weather and by carrying it out of the store it went into hibernation and all the leaves fell off and every day i've been looking at the leaves starting to bud and uh eventually like the more you look the less change you see until you don't look for a few days and then these leaves are actually like you can tell they're starting to become leaves so i think that's how it is with our daily bible reading uh we don't see the results if we track it minutely but over time i think this will be really beneficial this podcast is a ministry of resurrection church you can find out more at resurrectionmn.org can i be honest i have no clue what song you're talking about Twelve men went to spy on Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good. What do you think they saw in Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good? 